The sermon title is uh, Strength and Weakness. Uh, let's read our text. We'll be in verses 26 through 31 of 1 Corinthians 1. It says, First, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we humbly come before you, God. We thank you for this opportunity of being in your word, of being allowed to worship you, O Lord, in song and through the proclamation of your word. Lord, it is my prayer right now that it would be you that speaks. And that it would be you that would go forth and prepare the hearts and minds of all here today and all who listen. Lord, may you equip us, may you edify us, may you convict us of sin, may you encourage and build us up. May it be your word that is proclaimed faithfully and purely. May I be humbled. And may you receive all the glory and all the praise. And I thank you, God, for this undeserved privilege to stand before your people and proclaim your truth. So speak now to us, God. And I ask and pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Sigmund Freud, the famous Austrian neurologist said, God is an illusion based on the infantile need for a powerful father figure. Religion, necessary to help us restrain violent impulses earlier in the development of civilization, can now be set aside in favor of human reason and science. Christopher Hitchens cited Freud as an ally who he believes exposed the weak-minded childishness of religion. Albert Einstein wrote in, in a letter at the end of, toward the end of his life, "The word of God is for me nothing more. The word God is nothing more to me than the expression and product of human weakness. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still purely primitive legends, which are ne- nevertheless purely or pretty childish." I remember reading an article a few years back of a study done, and uh, I think Robin, you remember this, we talked about it a few years ago. Um, the study was basically they, the IQ of those who were theists to believe in God seemed to be lower than those who did not. Therefore, in other words, if you believe in God, you're dumb. I'm not sure how exactly the study was um, done, but 
that was a conclusion. We are living in an age where man believes he has outgrown God. We are told to wake up and stop believing in ancient fairy tales. Bill Nye, the science guy, recently stated, if you want to believe in God and religion, that's fine, but don't indoctrinate your children with it because the future needs them. End quote. As if raising them and instructing them in the things of God hinders them. Man, in all of his wisdom, knowledge, and achievements have become the pinnacle of adoration. But this is nothing new. This has and always will be the case, as we will see in our passage today. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. And not many of you were of noble birth. Let me give you a brief context and background. Um, the city of Corinth was a connecting point of, of uh, Greek mainland and, and uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula. It was trafficked frequently by ships and uh, a place where many cultures and religions would come and even settle. <clears throat> It was in Corinth that professional traveling orators and philosophers would come for a price and would relay to you their wisdom and knowledge and instructions of how to advance socially. It was a Roman colony and therefore was steeped heavily in Greek culture. Greek philosophy, philosophy meaning the love of wisdom, was the predominant influence at this time. The people would align themselves at this time with certain teachings and teachers at this time that, kind of like we do with our favorite sports teams, okay? They say, this is, this is the teaching and this is the, the teacher that I align myself with. <clears throat> uh, wisdom, human wisdom that is, was associated with power and sophistication. Now, there were a slew of issues that the Corinthian churches were dealing with that Paul addresses but one of the main issues and themes is that of division within the church. The Corinthian church had begun to incorporate the philosophical viewpoints and teachings and ways of the world around them. It is why in verse 12 they were arguing that some, of, some followed Paul, the teachers of Paul, and, and some followed Apollos, and some followed Barnabas, and some followed Christ, and... Uh, and Paul directs this and says, you know, we were not crucified for you. And so what they were doing was uh, adding this kind of ideology and teaching that was around them. <clears throat> and it's easy to be critical, but we are no better today. I remember in uh, 2006, a book by uh, Rhonda Ryan, I believe her name, her name is, um, Rhonda Bryan, sorry, came out called The Secret. The Secret was nothing more than a self-help book steeped in human philosophy. It, it was all about finding the good in things and, and being thankful and, and seeing the good in everything and, and being more positive and seeing a positive outlook on things. It took very little time before this was the number one bestseller, but that didn't surprise me. What it surprised me and amazed me was how much Christians were gobbling it up. I remember hearing of certain ministries that were going to try to incorporate the secret into their ministries and into their teaching. 
doing the exact same thing the Corinthians were doing. Trying to add human wisdom to the gospel. I like MacArthur on philosophy. He says, when, when it comes to philosophy, it is absolutely unnecessary. Because when it is right, it will line up with scripture. And you already have the word, so therefore you're not needed. And when it's wrong, it won't line up with scripture, and therefore also not needed. I love that. The Corinthians desired to dress up the gospel so that it was more rational and philosophically appealing to the outside world, to those that were considered wise and powerful and intellectual. For the Greeks attempted to reason their way to God by human speculation and intellect. For God to take on human form and die was incomprehensible to them. You've seen Greek mythology, the gods, Zeus, and, and all of them, the chiseled abs, and power. <clears throat> the Corinthian believers' thought process was mo- most likely to look more like the philosophical teachers and the world that they came out of to complicate the gospel, because that's usually what philosophy all it does, to take something simple and make it complicated. And make it more like Greek philosophy, and then perhaps it would be more accepting and deem less foolish. The gospel message was too simple. We sin, and God reconciling us to himself sent his son, God in flesh, to live the perfect life to impute to us, to die an atoning sacrifice, and be raised again to new life in which we have with them if we believe. Okay, but what else? That's it. Okay, but what do we attain to? How do, how do we go deeper than this? No, that's, that's the gospel. Now, you can, don't get me wrong, you can spend a thousand lifetimes looking into the gospel and never reach the bottom of its steps. Yet it is shallow enough that a child can apprehend it. I believe 2 Peter Peter says that angels long to look into it. That their God that is ever before them would die for sinful creation such as us. It was the simplicity that was a struggle for them. As it is many Today, uh, Richard Dawkins, who was a major critic of creationism and God, stated a God who was capable of sending intelligible signals to millions of people simultaneously and receiving message, messages from them, all of them simultaneously, cannot be whatever else he might be, simple, end quote. What he's not saying, he's not saying that God is, is complicated and we've simplified. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the God of the Bible is too simple for him to believe in. If there was a God, and if there is a God, according to Richard Dawkins, it's not this one. My intellect, I won't bring it down to that level in believing in a God so simple. After learning this, Paul reminds the Corinthians to consider where they were when God called them out of the darkness and into the light. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. In essence, he's saying, why do you care? 
What, who were you before God called you? You were nobodies. Most of them were most likely slaves. Counting to be nothing, to be weak, to be the nobodies of the world. And God called you at that point. So why do you want to, to revert? Why do you want to be like them? This philosophy did nothing for you before and it will do nothing for you now. Why do you care? Do not try to attain the approval and the adoration of man. Do not try to have success by the world standard. And it's easy to be judgmental, as I said before, I'm the Corinthians. But I see time and time again churches adopting worldly means and ideas in order to further God's kingdom here. And how often we measure success by the world's standards. Take, for instance, if I were to tell you that of a church, say in New Mexico where my grandfather lives, say I was telling you a story and I said, you have to see this church. This church is the epitome of a successful church. Oh my gosh. What's the first thing that comes to our minds? We're picturing what I'm picturing as I'm driving up to this church right now. It's a big building, right? A lot of people. Tons of ministries. Robust children's ministry and, and youth ministry. Hundreds of baptisms every week. Much to boast about. I know this comes in our mind because it comes in my mind sometimes when I, teach, when I hear people. And I don't know if that's because I flaw in this area where I think of um, success in the world standards or if I know that the person that I'm talking to is viewing success in the world standards or by the world standards. But when everyone says, oh man, this church is man, it's really successful... First thing that I come to mind, like, okay, they got probably a lot of money, and it's probably big and robust, and you know, really flourishing, and you know, probably one of the last things I, is, man, they they hit the gospel, they preach the word of God, they preach Christ. The people there are edified. The people there um, know the gospel. <clears throat> My youth ministry will most likely be deemed as a epic failure here because a lack of growth small and there are times when I could do more don't get me wrong there are times where I succumb to my own laziness and negligence but one thing I have confidence in is that the boys in my youth ministry I have confidence that when they graduate and if they go um, far away this is this is purely hypothetical. You guys aren't allowed to leave. But if, hypothetically, you were, go to college and, and look for a church, I am confident that every single one of them would be able to tell you in one sitting of that church whether that church is a Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, scripture-preaching church. I am confident in that. And I pray, and that's not praise to me, but the teaching that's here on Sundays, the ministry that we do do, and what we teach, and how they're raised. The Corinthians were most likely to 
tired of the ridicule, tired of the mockery that was being flung their way. Listen to uh, how Christians were viewed by this sophisticated, wise Greek philosopher in 170 AD, a ways away after this, but um, Celsus, a Greek philosopher in 170 AD, wrote of Christians, quote, let no cultural, cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible, for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if there be any ignorant, or unintelligent, or uninstructed, or foolish persons, let them come boldly, by which words acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God. They manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the foolish and the mean and the stupid with women and children, end quote. What is interesting about that quote is that was written in 178 AD. And it's not too far off from the quotes I gave earlier, is it not? Childish, stupid, foolish, weak. So this was the struggle. And Paul tells them, reminds them, guys, stop trying to attain human wisdom. Stop trying to be something you're not. God called you in, dis- in spite that you were weak, that you were considered to be nobody, that you were uneducated. Verse 27 and 28, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. We're going to be camped out here just for a little bit because this is where I really want to drive the point home. Because we as human beings are are drawn to power and strength, whether it be physical, mental, or by fortune. Nobody writes books or makes movies of nobodies. There's a kind of prestige that comes with those of great athletic abilities or the super rich or those who are considered to be the intellect of our day. And please don't get me wrong. Just because you're smart or educated or rich or maybe famous or athletic, I'm not saying that the gospel is not for you. I'm just saying that the world deems these things as the strong things. Ah. The desire for power is what led our first parents into sin. And it was fame, power, and fortune that Satan used to tempt our Lord in the wilderness. We as Christians are drawn into the lure of power ourselves. How many times have we, have we thought to ourselves, man, if only so-and-so could be saved. If only so-and-so who has this great influence and fame. When I was in youth ministry, it was Eminem. Everyone said, man, oh man, if only Eminem could get saved. Man, what a, what a story. What an influence he would be. Gosh, could God use him? If only God could get him on his team. Or how about this? We do this a lot. When an unbeliever, friend or family or coworker of ours says to us, oh, I like so-and-so group or artist or actor, someone who is a Christian, what's our immediate response? Oh, yeah, uh, you know they're a Christian, right? 
Yeah, oh, yeah, that, that band's great. Uh, they're Christian, just so you know. As if their faith validifies our own. Looking back through Scripture, one thing that is undeniable and somewhat universal, it is the key characteristics or trait used by God that is undeniable. This trait is by no means, like I said before, a qualification for salvation, nor is an absolute throughout Scripture. But looking through Scripture, you will notice that those used by and chosen by God are those of humility and weakness. I'd like to give you a few examples. Looking all the way back in the book of Genesis, God established a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation. Now, wait a minute. Was not Abraham wise? And during his day, was he not rich? Yes. This is true. But what and when did God establish the covenant with Abraham that he would make a great nation from him? Genesis 17, Abraham said to God, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? It wasn't a group of people of warriors or an already established civilization that God chose to make a great nation out of, but an old hundred-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife. What about one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament? Moses. Again, Moses was rich, and powerful, raised as a prince in Egypt. He was instructed, uh, I believe as Stephen in the book of Acts says, he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in his words and deeds. But it wasn't until he was an outcast by both the Egyptian people and his own Hebrew people. It wasn't until he was a foreigner tending his father-in-law's sheep 40 years later that God called him. Not while he was a great political power and influence, nor in the prime of his life, but when he was an 80-year-old shepherd. And what was Moses' response when God called him? Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God, I'm nobody. I'm stepping in sheep dung right now. I'm, what do you want from me? Who am I? God then reassures Moses that he would be with him. But again, Moses says in chapter 4, verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. God, they're just going to see an old, crazy shepherd guy has been out, out in the wilderness for 40 years. They're not going to believe me. After showing Moses the signs that he would perform through him to reassure the people that God did indeed send him, Moses responds in verse 10 of chapter 4, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent in speech and of tongue. Moses somehow developed a speech impediment or stuttering problem. God, I, I, I can't even talk right. I'm not your guy. Then in verse, God reassures Moses that he would be with his mouth and tells him, listen, I made you the way you are. You're not telling me anything I don't know, Moses. Is it not I that make the deaf deaf and the blind blind? Of course you have a certain problem. 
I'm the one who issued it. After that, verse 13, Moses says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses and told him that he could have Aaron as a mouthpiece and to go. Moses had an idea of what kind of man, what kind of person God uses. Young, strong, eloquent in speech, courageous, not a rejected 80-year-old stuttering sheep herder. What about one of the greatest kings or the greatest king that Israel ever had, King David? When the people of Israel demanded a king so that they may be like the other nations, another example of the people of God saying, we want to be, look, look at the other nations. They all have kings. We're run by a, a theocracy, but look, they have kings. We want to be like that, God. We want to have somebody over us. You're not enough. So God gave them exactly what they wanted. A king who was Saul, that the scriptures describe as a handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Strong. Mighty. But when Saul, in 1 Samuel 9-2, started rejecting God and disobeying God, and therefore was rejected, rejected by God, Samuel was grieved over it, but God says, listen, I'm going to have you go and anoint a new king who will be over my people. He says, go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. So he goes to Jesse and has him bring his sons before him, for one of them will be the king. And he sees Eliab, who I believe is the oldest. And what does, what does the prophet of God say? Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And after Jesse had brought all of his sons before Samuel, and every one of them was, was rejected, Samuel asked if this was it. And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping sheep. It's amazing to me that Jesse knows, okay, one of my sons is going to be anointed king. And he doesn't even invite David. He says, there's a youngest, the runt of the litter, but, I mean, he's nobody. He's no warrior, Samuel. He's, I mean, in fact, he's out doing the grunt work. He's out, you know, shepherding the sheep. And he says, bring him. We all know the story. He is anointed and chosen by God. Overcomes giants, a giant. What about the nation of Israel itself? Surely God chose Israel due to its great military power and strength. Surely not. All you have to do is look at the many times they were overcome and overtaken and conquered. Surely it was because of their faithfulness. Just read the book of Judges and you'll know that's not true. Well, then it had to be due to the fact that they were mighty in number. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. 
For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. I have walked through the city of Memphis in Egypt, the capital city. And I have seen those great ruins. I have been to the pyramids of Giza and seen those great ruins. But that is all that's left of Egypt. Is this great ruins? That mighty nation? Sorry. The great Babylonian empire, which boasted of its art, education, mathematics, astronomy, is also no more than ruins. The great and mighty military power of the Roman army that spanned over 500 years is nothing more than a beautiful ruins and history. Yet the Jewish people are still here today. A nation. A nation that has been conquered and overcome and enslaved time and time again still here. Fast forward to the New Testament. To whom was it that Jesus said, among those born of women there has never risen anyone greater? Matthew eleven eleven, John the Baptist. A man with no military training, no higher education, nothing physically appealing about him, just some crazed, camel-hair-wearing, bug-eating guy who lived in the wilderness. What about the men that Jesus chose? When Jesus came to, to choose the disciples, he did not run to the, the Roman palaces and, and, and grab the Roman, great Roman officials and power of that day. He did not go to the temple and, and grab the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of that time. But Jesus sought out working class nobodies like fishermen and a despised tax collector. These men lacked faith, were slow to believe, slow to understand, and had horrendous memories. Sound familiar? These men scattered at his arrest, went back to work after his death. These men, some of whom didn't believe after the report of his resurrection. And some of the outside disciples even didn't believe after he appeared to them. These men were the least qualified by man's standard. But we see a dramatic change in the book of Acts, do we not? When Peter and John were before the council in chapter 4, verse 13... They say, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It was the fact that they were nobodies and that they were um, associated having been with Jesus. What about the Apostle Paul? Now here is one of the greatest men ever to be used of God. He was said to have an education at the age of his early 20s, equivalent to two PhDs, two or three PhDs today. He was a student of Gamaliel, who was like the head teacher and expounder of the law. Paul says himself in Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
As to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless was I. But after all that education and zeal and self-righteousness, what does Paul say of it? But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, there is no doubt that God used Paul's education. And I don't want to belittle that. I think education is a great thing. I think seminary is a great thing. I would love to go to seminary. It's, it's an absolute great thing. But when I think to myself that I cannot be used, and that I cannot proclaim the gospel without this education, then that becomes a problem. So I don't want to belittle that at all. There's no doubt that God used it. But what Paul is, is saying to the Corinthians in his second letter, and what he's saying to them now is that, listen, I was educated. I was of high esteem, okay? I had the, the, the power, as it were, the wisdom of man, both a Roman and Jewish citizen. He, he was at the pinnacle. He was at the top. And he says, I count it as garbage, worthless when I compare it to the surpassing knowledge that I have of Christ in the gospel. When I cling to something, I cling to Christ, not my wisdom, not my knowledge, not my education, not my job, not my standard, not my appeal to the world. This is the point that Paul is trying to get through to the Corinthian church. No matter who you are, if you are a follower of Christ, then you are wiser than the most educated rocket scientist in the world who does not believe. What about our Lord himself? Born to a poor family, worked as a carpenter, had no home of his own, Luke 9, 58, had no physical appeal about him, even though the movie show him with the straight hair and all, uh, you know, an oar around him. Judas had to kiss him in order to let the Roman officials know that this is the one that they were, he was portraying. Had no physical appeal about him, nor any earthly worth. The Jews expected a warrior conqueror, a king, but instead got a humble servant. Expected a ferocious lion, instead got a slain lamb. His ministry, when he ascended, would be considered an epic failure. Just a handful of people. Yet what did our Lord rejoice to the Father about in Luke 10, 21, when the disciples come and say, Lord, even the demons are, are subject to us in your name. And he said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then he praised God and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What about the means in which salvation was brought? The cross. The passage in which Paul read earlier. What foolishness. How can a man allowing himself to be arrested, beaten, and nailed to a cross, left for dead, how can that be your Savior and King? How can that be your God? Even if he did suppose he arise, how can one man's death bring about the salvation of a multitude of people? I will not. I refuse to bring my intellect down to that level and to believe in that. 
was the cry of the outside world, which is the cry of the outside world today. It sounds ridiculous. It's not rational and does not make sense. And he did this for who? His supposed enemies? 118 in 1 Corinthians, the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. What about the means in which God has revealed himself today? I find it fascinating that God has created the universe. A universe so complex that I mean, we're barely tapping into all that it is. And he does reveal himself through creation, don't get me wrong. But his primary source of revealing himself to us book, scripture, written by kings, nobodies, fishermen, shepherds. The Bible has been, no other book has been as under much scrutiny and criticism as the Bible. In our day, with technological advancements and abounding knowledge, the Bible is said to be obsolete in this time of modern science. But in 1492, it was a fact that the world was flat. Isaiah said, is he who sits above the circle or sphere of the earth. The oldest piece of literature, the book of Job, said that he hangs the earth on nothing. In our day of advanced GPS and global satellites, it is the Bible that is used by many archaeologists in order to find determined potential dig sites. They look at areas in the Bible where they know Jerusalem, and they, they say, okay, well, according to the Bible, this far away was a civilization. And they, they calculate that, and they dig, and time and time again, the Bible has been shown to be geographically correct. <clears throat> Amazing. When critics attempted to prove that there was no historical Roman figure named Pontius Pilate because there would have surely been some kind of known artifact mentioning him. And then in 1961, a damaged block of carved limestone which was discovered with a partially intact inscription giving tribute to a Pontius Pilate who, quote, perfect of the Roman providence of Judea from AD 26 to 36. In 1861, the French Academy of Science wrote a pamphlet stating that there were 51 incontrovertible scientific facts that proved the Bible not true. Today, there is not one reputable scientist in the world that believes one of those 51 so-called facts. If science were to be put through the same scrutiny that the Bible has endured through the ages, then it would fail miserably. There's a library in Paris that has three and a half miles of books of science that is considered obsolete. What was once taught as fact has now been proven to be false. Because we're just now catching up with God. But now we have it. Now we have science down. It's not going to change anymore. We're not going to discover anything new. Now we know. Yet the Bible has not been altered or rewritten and still stands the test of time. Paul says that God uses the things that are not to bring nothing to the things that are. To call a Greek at this time, nothing was the biggest insult because of their philosophical stated, uh, state of, of being, their view of, of the state of being was all to them. And, 
And to be called nothing was kind of a little jab that Paul gives to the, the Greek philosophers and the wise people of this day. That's no different today. Man will always desire to be viewed in high regard, and his pride will allow no less. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The reason for God choosing the weak and humble is obvious. It is through Christ, through a a means which is deemed foolish by man, And it is to give glory to God. But if you strip this away from the gospel, if you take these things away, if you take God out of the equation, you take Christ out of the equation, you take the cross out of the equation, who is left to receive the glory? Me. You. Us. To what then does that, that, to what does it that man has to cling to rather than other than himself? And therefore they boast in themselves. This is nothing new. This is, this is Genesis 3 all over again. You shall be like God. If we can, if we can dethrone God, if we can attain, and, and we don't even have to dethrone him and by not believing, if we can just attain it by our own wisdom and by our own strength and by our own works and righteousness, then I can boast. then I have something to boast about. But just as the high council in Acts 4 viewed John and Peter with astonishment because of them being uneducated and unskilled, they attributed to him, attributed to them that they knew Christ. That all glory be to our God. Our flesh longs to steal the glory from God at every opportunity. And we must be reminded of this fact because it is so easy for us to walk away from this sermon thinking, what a great sermon about me. What a great sermon about us. How Cameron told us that we're going to be like Moses or David or the apostles. Let me tell you something. Moses and David were foreshadowings of Christ. You're not them. The apostleship has long ended. Unless you're a Mormon. But it has ended. No more apostles. You're not them. Or how are you going to be, or how are you going to do great things, and therefore God becomes like a life coach that aids you in accomplishing these great feats? When I was 17 years old, I was, I don't know what brought me to do this, but I was rolling pennies, probably because I was 17 years old and I had no money. and I think they're in like 50 cent rolls, I think, or 25 cents, I don't know. Um, but doing a daunting task of, of rolling pennies. And, I, uh, and pennies are disgusting, by the way. You get that weird smell, and they're nasty. Money is gross. But one penny individ- uh, um, individually was just covered in uh, gunk. That's the best word I can describe it. I don't know what it was. Poor Abraham Lincoln's face, you couldn't even see it. 
And I thought to myself, oh, what disgusting. And I grabbed it and set it aside. Finished rolling the pennies, grabbed that penny, went over to the garbage can to throw it away, discard it, and something came over me. And I instead took that penny into the bathroom and started to wash it under hot water. And it took a lot of scrubbing and a lot of picking at my nail with it. Finally, I got the gunk off of it. I soap in hot water, cleaned it. And after it was clean, I, I soaked it in hand sanitizer. You could still see the outline of where the gunk was. It wasn't as shiny as a brand new penny, but it was definitely not perfect. It was not a perfect penny, but nevertheless, it was clean. It was a cleansed penny. I found myself identifying with that penny. I don't know if it's because I'm so sentimental or whatnot, but as foolish as it sounds, as stupid as it sounds, I identified with that penny. God, who had every right and reason to discard me, set me aside. Set you aside. God, who had every reason to throw me away, chose to set me aside and and cleanse me. I know I'm not perfect. I am clean. Because of Christ. I taped that penny to the doorway of my room to be reminded of that fact. And I decided, I didn't know how or what at the time, that I was going to use that penny for something. My mom's probably thinking, that was that stupid penny. I remember that stupid thing. I was always wondering. She never asked me about it. Ten years later, I got engaged. Phil performed the ceremony. I don't know if it was a couple days or a week before. I asked Phil, who was doing the ceremony for free, can you do me a favor and charge me one penny to marry Lily and I? He didn't ask questions. He said, okay. And on my wedding day, I stood at the altar. As I waited for my bride to come down the aisle, I took that penny from my pocket and asked, Phil, can I pay you now? I think he had actually forgotten about it. I was like, oh, yeah. And I gave him that penny and purchased the greatest thing that I have in this, of this world, their marriage to my wife and my son. I used, now there was thousands of dollars spent on that wedding. Parents can tell you. Flowers and cake, I can't believe cake costs. Um, Entertainment, decorations, all that. But all of that would have been rendered completely useless and insignificant if that marriage did not take place. A marriage that was bought with a penny. Now, 
how foolish would it be to listen to this story and say, what a great tr- story about the triumph of that penny. Or think the main character of that story was the penny. Beloved, I was the main character of that story. And that penny was used to accomplish my purpose and my goal and my desire. And make no mistake of it, my marriage to my wife that day was not dependent upon me having that penny. I'm pretty sure Phil forgot about it. I could have given him a dollar, a quarter. I could have used another penny. I could have told him, hey, forget about it. Don't pay anything, forget about it. It was not dependent upon that penny. But I chose it to be. That penny was significant because I had set my affection upon it. That was the only reason it was of the utmost value at that point. I'm pretty sure Phil probably just discarded that penny or threw it away and almost wanted to tell him, hey, I've hung on to that penny for 10 years. Don't just throw it away. But I was like, you know what? It's not about the penny. God has chosen to set his affection upon us and to use us in the furthering of his kingdom. He could have a myriad of angels to do the work that he's called us to do, and I'm pretty sure they'd probably do a better job at it. But he has chosen you and I to be, as 2 Corinthians says, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors go on behalf of their king. I was originally hesitant of giving this sermon because of the flesh. But I felt compelled because I feel that we get equipped every Sunday. We get, we get edified and built up every Sunday. But right before we walk out those doors, we kind of just take that off and hang it up. Let me ask you, do you feel like an ambassador for Christ? Be honest. And don't make any mistake. Outside those doors is a world that hates you, your God, and the word. Outside those doors is a world that, just like in the Corinthians days, deems your belief of God as ancient fairy tales, stupid and foolish. And we have grown very timid because we feel overshadowed. But take courage because God gave us us weaklings not a spirit of fear, but of power, according to 2 Timothy 1.7, of boldness, not of fear. And we get to take part in this work. What a privilege. And you may think to yourself, I'm no pastor, I'm no apologist, I'm no theologian. I'm nobody. I'm un- undereducated. I'm... Uh, I'm not very good at speaking. I'm not very influential. I'm a new believer. I'm 
I'm nobody. I tell you the story of John 9, of the blind beggar who was healed by Christ. And, and afterwards, the Pharisees are, are basically um, interrogating him, asking him, okay, and bringing his family in, bringing people in, and saying, are you sure this guy was blind? They're trying to find a rational reason as to the restoration of his sight. It can't be because Jesus healed you because that man is a sinner. Don't give him glory. And they're saying, hey, man, listen, yeah, he was blind. That's our son. I mean, ask him. He's a full-grown man. Ask him. And they're interrogating him. He says, listen, listen, I I don't know. I'm whether he's a sinner. I just met the guy. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. A statement used by a blind beggar nobody 2,000 years ago. A statement that was in a song that you and I just sang in worship to our God. I will add a little side note, and due to it being a whole other sermon by itself, God's strength is also found in our weakness of situations. In the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of a thorn given to him that kept him from being conceited, and he pleaded with God to take it from him. But God answered him, saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. And then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. We know not what the thorn was, and we don't need to know, because we know the purpose of it, to keep Paul humble and from him and to keep him to cling to God. And there are situations that come in our life that make you weak. And we plead as Paul does, or did, Lord, move it from me. But most of the time God replies simply, no. But I will move through it. God's strength is revealed in our weakness. His strength can be revealed in the weakness of your insecurities. Strength in the weakness of your marriages. Strength in even your physical weakness. Brenda's not here. But never did I see strength and power of God in a woman who, after a chemotherapy, struggled to get up the steps. Bald with a mask on, yet I knew behind that mask was a smile. Never did I see her more strong. Never did I see the, God of, the strength of God in her in the time of her absolute weakness. And we in verse 30, 31. How did God make this all possible? And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All this is possible, beloved, because of Christ. And this is a perfect ending to lead us now into communion. But uh, I warn you, those may be here or those may be listening, warning of those who are allowing their pride 
their intellect, their, their independent ways, their self to get in the way. I ask you and tell you, if you do not repent and bring yourself to the end of yourself, then this foolishness will be your shame and undoing. And I will end with a quote from uh, John Piper. He says, The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you're feeling weak and you're feeling as if you're not able to be used by God, take courage. And know that the world's always going to hate you. But we have a God on our side. We have a God. Or show his strength in our weakness.